Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on? I'm in a good mood. I got a new chair, new office chair. I heard about this. Home office. Um, yeah, man. I, I could really use one myself. My my chair is like falling apart at the seams. I've been absolutely wearing it out over the past, what's it been now, like eight months? Eight months, eight years. Who Who knows? So yeah, I'm happy for you and I'm hoping the improved posture and sitting comfort is going to amplify your performance on the pod. Yeah, well, I think it's been lacking, but you know. Yeah. You know, well, off season's over now and it's training camp, so I figured you know, got to got to do what you got to do to get your mind and your body right for the season. Yeah, I I like still haven't fully reckoned with this, but teams have reported for training camp the season proper is starting in less than three weeks. We already have a reported Christmas Day slate. And just a few minutes ago, actually, Shams Charania broke uh, the tentative December 22nd opening night doubleheader, which is going to be the Nets and the Warriors in Brooklyn and the Lakers and Clippers in LA. So, so I'm going to whet your appetite there. KD versus the Warriors. KD against the Warriors and obviously the Battle of LA. Not anything actually that we're going to be touching on in this episode. We're going to be looking at, for starters, uh, a few over-unders because a, a bunch of the Vegas sports books came out with their win total over-under lines. And we're going to run through and, and hit on a few of them that, that we feel particularly confident in. And after that, we're going to talk about we sort of frame this, I think, as the race for the last playoff spot in the East, but it's really more of a race for the three play-in spots, because as we know, seeds 7 through 10 in both conferences are going to engage in a play-in tournament scenario. I still don't know what to call it, because it's not really a tournament. Uh, the play-in situation, as we've called it in the past. I, I mean, it's it's kind of a tournament, I guess. Yeah, like a really I, short tournament <laughs> where two teams emerge. So yeah, it's really more about, I guess, the top 10 seeds than than the top eight as it's been in the past. And I think we can both agree that the top seven in the East is looking, you know, barring catastrophic injury, fairly locked in. So later in the episode, we're going to hit on the race for those next three spots and what that might look like. But we'll kick it off with some talk about these over-unders. So there's some variation in the lines at different books, but we're going to use the one from the William Hill sports book because that is the one that seems to be the most up-to-date. And essentially, we're going to go back and forth. We're each going to pick three that we feel especially confident in. And I'm not really a huge betting person, especially when it comes to sports, but I always find this to just be a really interesting exercise to frame, I think, our expectations for how these teams are going to perform against how, I guess, the general betting public is feeling. So why don't you kick us off, Cash? What is the number one line from this William Hill sports book that you're feeling confident about heading into this season? Well, I won't lie. I've lost confidence in it over the 24 hours since we spoke, but uh, I'm still going to go with it. And it's Mavs over 43 wins. 
Um, okay, why, why have you lost confidence in it uh, in the last 24 hours? Just like the more I thought of it. Like, so, okay, so here's the criteria. They, they won 43 games last year, um, playing 75 games. So they have three less games to win the same number, and they've got Luka friggin' Doncic. Like, Porzingis um, is banged up. We know that. There, there's, you know, obvious question marks there. But I feel confident that they will get to 43. You know, losing Seth Curry, I think... He was an underrated component of what they do, but as we've discussed on previous episodes, we think that Curry for Richardson swap is probably a win-win for both teams. I think Richardson probably balances the Mavs a lot more and gives them a little more of what they needed. So I'm I'm confident in it. I'm just not as confident in it as when I first made the decision because I don't know why I thought the Mavs had a better record than 43-32 and 32 last season, which again, it's it still works because what I'm saying is yeah. that they just need to get the same amount of wins in three last games. And I think the big thing I haven't mentioned here yet is that while it might seem ludicrous to expect much more from Luka Doncic than what he already put forth last season – you really step back and think about it, like given given the stratosphere of superstars that he has put himself in, in terms of like his performance at his age, and then you look at how guys at that level usually continue to improve in those early years and at that age, it might be more ludicrous to assume he doesn't take another step forward. And so Luka Doncic at the level he was playing at last year, and the Mavs with even like average health around him should win 43 out of 72 games. Yeah, I think maybe the reason that you're forgetting that they only won 43 games last year is that they actually had, I think, the the fifth or maybe the sixth best net rating in the entire NBA. And they underperformed their point differential by a, a larger margin than any team. They actually had the point differential of a 49-win team. So I think their record actually undersold how good they were last year. And yeah, you know, being without Porzingis to start the season is definitely a blow, especially because, you know, we don't really know when Dwight Powell is going to be back. So they kind of filled that void at the five by re-signing Willie Cauley-Stein, who wasn't especially good for them after they acquired him at the deadline. But I do think, I mean, Maxi Kleba, I think is like a perfectly acceptable stopgap and gives them the kind of rim protection that they need while also being able to space the floor. You know, obviously I don't think he does either of those things at the level that Porzingis does, but, you know, just to kind of hold the fort for a few weeks until Porzingis can get back, I think that maybe the bigger concern, and we talked about this on a previous episode, you know, is this going to be one of those things for Porzingis that just sort of lingers and becomes an issue throughout the season, especially given his history of knee injuries uh, his size and and the difficulty of starting a season on the shelf and coming back and finding a rhythm and just being able to stay healthy. I think that could turn out to be an issue. And, you know, if it is a thing where Porzingis just winds up playing half the season, then I think it could be difficult for the Mavs to, to get to that point where they are hitting the over on 43. But man, I, I Luca's really that good. And, and I think he just gives that team such a high floor and makes life so much easier for everybody around him. I also really like the Josh Richardson addition for them. I think he's pretty much exactly what they needed. A guy who's both, you know, an ace perimeter defender who can guard point guards, which is something that you don't want Luca doing, uh, but who's going to fill more of 
you know, an off guard role offensively. He's a good enough shooter, especially on spot ups. And he can also give you, I think, some secondary playmaking. So I think that's a great addition. And what what is what does forty three kind of translate to in an eighty two game season? It's like forty eight and change. So that's the thing. Like when you think about it, if they play at a fifty win, like a fifty win team, they easily clear this. And uh, I think they can do that. Again, given that I think it's actually reasonable to expect another leap from Luca, and like we both mentioned, the way that Josh Richardson fits on that team, and you know the the way Rick Carlisle will continue to maximize the talent in his disposal. I, I I can't see that team losing or sorry, winning less than 43 games, even in a 72 game season. It is worth noting that the Mavs actually had a better net rating last season with Luca on and Porzingis off than with both of those guys on the floor at the same time with Luca on court and Porzingis off court. They had a plus 6.8 net rating compared to plus five with both of them on. So there is obviously a track record there of them being successful. And, you know, I, I think the, those stats are all a little bit noisy and context dependent. I, I don't think that means that Porzingis not being there is going to make them better, obviously. But, you know, the fact that Luca has shown that he can captain what's basically an elite team, uh, even without Porzingis there, matters. Uh, and I think, you know, the fact that they still have a big in Kleba who can offer them some of the, you know, the value of Porzingis' spacing at the five uh, should help them in that regard too. And Luca's probably like, if I had to pick who was going to win MVP this year, I feel like he'd probably be the safest bet at this point in time. Well, just because you don't think voters will like the media will give it to Giannis the third year in a row. I think I, I'm sure we'll get into all this when we do like proper season predictions sometime in the near future, but yeah, I think what Giannis would have to do this season to win that for a third time in a row, it would have to be, he might literally have to have the greatest regular season of all time. I just feel like with the way that last season ended, especially given the way that LeBron was almost like bullying the voters preemptively into not <laughs> voting for Giannis by you know coming out with those comments about how it's all narrative driven and he doesn't feel like the best player in the league tends to win that award. There's voter fatigue with Giannis. Like I, I, I think there's so much that's like working against him and I would maybe peg LeBron as being the odds on favorite. If there wasn't this really short turnaround that might lead to him taking it easy a bit for the first part of the season. But LeBron is also a cyborg. So who really knows? Maybe he'll just come out and play like <laughs> even better than he did last year. Like you can't really put anything past him at this point. But uh, I think there's a lot working in Luca's favor from the, the ridiculous season that he had last year. The fact you know that we expect him to potentially be even better this year. The fact that he's going to have to do it without as much help as he had last year, at least at the start of the season. Uh, I think if the Mavs do hit that over then it'll be hard to pick against Luca in the MVP race. But that's a conversation for another day. I'll start with my most confident prediction, and that's the Jazz at 41. That would translate to, I think, about a 47-win season over a full 82. And I just think they're way better than that. Like, they won 44 out of 72 games last season, and they were kind of seen as, like, a major underachiever. 
And I don't know how much better Donovan Mitchell's going to get. I, maybe Rudy Gobert has plateaued. Like I actually thought he was a little bit worse last season than he was the season prior. But I think that's a really good regular season nucleus and one that brings a really high floor. Both of those guys are super durable and don't get hurt a whole lot. I don't know. I just feel like this is kind of a forgotten team in the West because, you know, their core hasn't changed and there's something maybe a bit stilted and boring about them. People don't seem to really like Gobert, but I think it's worth remembering that this team was shellacking the Nuggets through four games in the first round last year and came within a Mike Conley buzzer beater, which was halfway down from knocking those Nuggets off in the first round and maybe eventually going to the West final, though I don't actually think they would have gotten past the Clippers, but I do think maybe people have forgotten that this is still a really good team. Uh, and Conley, I thought, looked way better in the bubble. So I expect him to be better in year two with the Jazz than he was for most of year one, which was obviously very rough. And another thing is like their starting lineup killed teams last year. And what really hurt them was that their bench was a total disaster for most of the year. And then Clarkson coming over in the trade midway through the season really helped shore up that second unit. And he's back on a contract I don't love, but uh, in terms of their regular season win total this season, that undeniably helps. And then they brought back Derek Favors, who I think will be a big help to their defense, which slipped pretty badly without him last year. And... Like, they'll play favors with Gobert probably a lot less than they did in the past now that they have Bogdanovich there essentially serving as their small ball four. But I do think they'll break that out at times as sort of a a defense-focused matchup-based lineup. They'll have the option to use it, and the rest of the time, favors will just be one of the better backup fives in the league. Uh, So I expect their bench to be better, and, you know, the starting lineup that kicked ass for most of last year will essentially be unchanged the jazz are good they should be great defensively again especially with favors back um and i agree with what you're saying about them being kind of the forgotten good team in the west and it's a modest win total so i i don't think it's uh, outrageous by any stretch but this to me reeks of a team that won't quite look right I mean, some chemistry issues that honestly started last year before any of the COVID scandal happened. You know, you remember we had Eric Walden on uh, the podcast at one point last year to talk about the kind of, not infighting, but just maybe the reasons why things, the pieces weren't fitting together the way they thought they would. And, um, And then you just add in the year that they had last year. And I know what you were saying, that they were, you know, a Conley shot away from beating the Nuggets, but they didn't. And they blew a 3-1 lead in that series. And it'll be interesting to see just how that lingers. You know, maybe it doesn't mean anything, but maybe it does. Maybe a team that already had some friction, at the very least, comes back with more of it after blowing a 3-1 series lead. And we'll see how Gobert's pending free agency affects things at, you know at all we've seen in the past that sometimes that is a very real distraction for players and or teams um, and especially for you know teams like utah whether you want to call them small market or whatever that can't lose a guy like that for nothing there there are just a lot of reasons why not that i think they're going to be a bad team or or that i think they won't reach this number but there are a lot of reasons that would make me very uneasy about spending my own money on on betting on this team to do something for me. You know what I mean? 
Um, it's not even about the win total being cr- crazy or thinking they can't reach it. It's just I go into this season looking at Utah. I was like, I don't think they're bad. I think they're actually pretty good, especially if things go right. But I don't trust that team right now to put my money on them. That's fair. I, and I even the Clarkson think- thing. Like, I, I agree with you. He, he um, you know, he played the best basketball of his career in kind of propping up their bench. I don't like the contract for him, though. And I, to me, that reeks of the contract that's like very typical for those kind of bench gunners. Where it's like you're paying him for that season that he just gave you. That really is not indicative of any past season he's had in the NBA. And I, I just don't know how much reason we have to believe that that is just who he is now. And if he's not, could be an issue. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think Clarkson has been more or less that guy in the past. I do think last year was his best season, but I don't think he was playing way over his head. I think he was just in a role that made a lot of sense for him. And he filled a very clear area of need for that team, which was just scoring punch off of the bench. And I think bringing favors back now gives them some defensive stability with that bench unit as well. And just a little more ability to mix and match with their transitional groups. So, yeah, I I get what you're saying. And obviously, like, the Mitchell and Gobert stuff has been well chronicled. But I do think they went out and still, in spite of blowing that 3-1 lead, had what I would consider to be a very good first-round series against the eventual Western Conference finalist in Denver after all of that stuff had played out so publicly. And I would expect that they'll be able to sweep it under the rug for this regular season. And maybe the the Gobert contract situation will complicate that. But I just think that there's too much talent here on both sides of the ball for this to be a team that wins fewer than 41 games, especially because like they didn't have Bogdanovich in that first round series either. And he was a really crucial part of their offense. I didn't think that their offense was really going to be able to function without him. And instead they wound up shredding that Nuggets defense through most of that series. And I think, you know, having Bogdanovich back, they were like eight points better per hundred possessions with him on the floor last season. Uh, I think this is a team that has, you know, a lot of offensive firepower and obviously that really high defensive floor that Gobert gives them. So I think 41 is pretty low uh, and I would feel very comfortable picking the over. Who you got next up? Celtics under 46.5. Uh, I double checked. Uh, this morning before we recorded to to see if that line has moved or that total has moved now with the Kemba news out, but I can't find anywhere where it has moved. So as of right now, I'm considering that the number is still 46.5. And I just think that's too high for a team that uh, lost Gordon Hayward for not for nothing from an asset standpoint, because they got the massive trade exception, the biggest in NBA history, but they lost him for nothing from like an immediate talent perspective. So uh, a team that just lost Gordon Hayward and a team who is going to be without Kemba Walker for at least the first, I don't know, two, three weeks of the season. They're saying he won't be back until January. Um, They're not saying he will be back at that point. It's just that's the earliest he'll be back. And we know how those kinds of timelines seem to uh, fluctuate in an NBA season, right? A guy, well, he won't be ready for the start of it. It started actually with he'll be ready for the start of the season, but he won't be up to speed. Is what Brad Stevens said, I think, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Then it became he won't be ready for opening night. Then it became he's going to be uh, ready in January. So a lot of times when we've seen this in the past, it ends up with a guy missing more time than you realize uh, or that you assume he will. So just in general, the, the question marks about Kemba's health, Hayward not being there and them not replacing his shot 
making and creation ability with anyone else. I, you know, the, I think the Tristan Thompson signing was actually pretty good for them, but that's not going to be the difference to me in whether they hit this number or not. So to give everyone for, um, some context, it's the equivalent of essentially a 53 win season, which isn't that crazy given the bottom of the East. If you take, you know, if you beat the teams you should beat, and with the amount of talent Boston still has, it's not that crazy. It's not like I think they're going to go way under that, but you know, much like I was saying with Utah, I just wouldn't feel comfortable putting money on them. Yeah, the Celtics playing the equivalent of a 53-win team in an actually improved East, really, uh, without Gordon Hayward, with nothing replacing it, with Kemba Walker missing maybe a month, like we don't know. And, and a team that's honestly not as deep either. Like even, you know, an under-the-radar thing, like them losing Brad Wanamaker, uh, Jeff Teague might be a bigger name than Brad Wanamaker. More casual fans have heard of Jeff Teague. Jeff Teague is not an upgrade over Brad Wanamaker in the year of our Lord 2020. Like that is just not something that is a true statement. So, and with Kemba out, like, I don't know, is Jeff T starting for them now with Marcus Smart in the backcourt? Like that hampers them. So yeah, I just, I don't feel confident that that team is going to play like a 53 win team. And you know, once maybe Kemba's back and they figure things out, maybe later in the season, they'll look great. And maybe they'll look like a 60 win team, but they're not going to do that over the course of the entire season. So I'm going under 46.5 on the Celtics. Yeah, I think, I mean, is there a chance maybe that they will just start smart at point guard and like bump everybody down a position and get super funky with like smart, you know, Jalen Brown at the two, Tatum at the three, like Tice at the four, Thompson at the five? Could they get that crazy? I was thinking about that. And then what do you do off the bench? Like Jeff Teague, Grant Williams, I guess. Robert Uh, Williams. Aaron Neesmith. Aaron Neesmith. Yeah, their their bench is kind of not it's great. It's bad, and again, in a condensed season, depth matters. Yeah, I do. I, I don't really get why they let go of Wanamaker, especially considering that he signed for basically the minimum. Like they they couldn't have gone above that to keep him around. Got to get Jeff Teague, man. I, I agree with you. I think Wanamaker is better, especially defensively. So I I would be a little concerned about starting the season potentially with Jeff Teague as your starting point guard or as you know, essentially your best player <laughs> off of the bench. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, on the, the Tristan Thompson point, I do think that's a good signing for them. But I, I'm still scratching my head at why they didn't want Miles Turner. And there's been, I guess, a little bit of conflicting reporting about the timeline and whether that offer from Charlotte would have come through regardless and whether Hayward was enticed enough by the money and by Michael Jordan's pursuit of him to take that deal regardless but it sure seemed like he wanted to go to indiana and that indiana was prepared to put miles turner on the table and that the celtics just preferred tristan thompson on the mid-level you know compared to miles turner making twice as much money which i don't agree with at all Uh, i think yes miles turner has a lot of holes in his game And, you know, offensively, like there isn't a whole lot of in between there. Like he doesn't have a ton of polish. He doesn't do much more for you offensively than shoot threes. But look at the makeup of their team. Like they don't need him to do much more than that offensively in the spacing that he can provide from the five while also providing a plus rim protection at the other end. I don't know, like if if they were going to construct one of those funky big lineups playing two bigs at the same time, like. Miles Turner would make a whole lot more sense next to Daniel Tice than Tristan Thompson does. Yeah, and I also think it's funny that a lot of Celtics fans are 
assuming that this trade exception is automatically going to land. Like uh, a lot of fans, even that I follow, are just kind of checking out on Twitter. We're going off about how like, oh yeah, everyone ripped Danny Ainge for losing Gordon Hayward for nothing, but he didn't. He got the biggest trade exception in history. And like, look, it's like, yeah, first of all, look at the history of trade exceptions. First of all, most of them go unused straight up. Second of all, we're talking about Danny Ainge. Say what you will about his scouting and his, his like, whatever. But the when it comes to trades and and maybe using the assets at his disposal, he's had somewhat of a reputation for sitting on his hands or at least being very hesitant to part with those things. So uh, no one should be assuming that the Celtics are going to turn that trade exception into, you know, some star impact player. Now, maybe, I don't know, maybe in like free agency next summer, they use it, right, to maybe land someone they otherwise couldn't. I don't know, as like a signing trade, but yeah, it, it, that trade exception to me is not going to help them achieve this win total in the regular season. You know, maybe it helps them next year or the off season, whatever, but just all in all, I look at this team and it's just like between the depth and they're not as good as they were last year. They're more banged up already just to start the season. I Playing like a 53 win team again, and I'll mention again, while the bottom of the East is still trash, it's an improved East overall, right? And 53 wins doesn't sound like a lot, but it's tough to play at that pace given the roadblocks already in the Celtics way before we've even played a game. I think to hit the over, Tatum would have to be pretty special. And I do think that's entirely possible. But honestly, I'm struggling to come up with a name even that would be attainable for them that would fit into that trade exception. Like Gobert. Like as a 20, I mean, as a 20, but again, as a 2021 sure. free agent, like, I don't know. They, you know, they. What's going back the other way in that deal? The though? trade exception. <laughs> like if say Gobert would just, I'm, what I'm saying is to like me. The, I'm sorry, the Jazz are just salary dumping. No, no. What I'm saying is to me, that trade exception, the only way I could see it actually being quote unquote used is if say in free agency, one of the big free agents wants to go to Boston. They can't sign him straight up under the cap. And so his incumbent team. Is go like they're not going to retain him anyway. If he doesn't go to buy, he'll just go somewhere else. So they know they're not going to retain him. He's going to leave, and they just end up working something out. It's like, all right, well, I guess we'll get a trade exception out of it as opposed to lo- like to me. That's the only real way I can see the Celtics using an exception that big is if essentially it's more like a free agency coup, but they just have to do it via signing trade for cap reasons, and the team losing that player is going to lose him anyway. So rather than lose him for nothing, they just, like. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, if the Jazz are willing to sign and trade Gobert, then some team is going to come in and beat the Celtics' offer for him. Because what I'm saying is, what if it was like, what if Gobert says to the Jazz, "I'm leaving." I'm not talking about during the season. Like, I'm saying in actual free agency, he lets them know, "I'm not coming back. I'm leaving." It's between, uh, I'm either going to Boston or I'm going to this other team that can just sign me outright. Mm-hmm. I'd prefer to go to Boston. So figure out something with them there. If you can't, I'm just going to go to this other team for now. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm trying to explain that it would, the only way I can see the Celtics using this massive exception is in some strange scenario like that, where it's in free agency and it's more so that they're the best suitor for that free agent and the incumbent team just wants to solve it. So I'm like, we've seen that in free agency before over the years, you know, whether it's like a, a trade exception or a package of picks that is nowhere near the value of the player leaving. It's just because the incumbent team is like, well, okay, if that's where you want to go and like our other option is we lose you for nothing. Okay. We'll accept a trade exception for this, like, you know, MVP caliber player. So. All right. Um, in, in any case, I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily see that as something that's going to help their win total this season. So 
I don't know that I feel as confident as you do, but I would, if I were picking, I would definitely pick the under, I think, on 46 and a half. My next best bet, I like the Raptors over 42 and a half. Uh, first of all, this team has hit the over nine straight times. So overperforming relative to external expectations is just what the Raptors do. And I mean, they went 53 and 19 last year in the 72 game season. So this line is, if you're picking the under, you're expecting an 11 win drop just for going from Gasol and Ibaka to Aaron Baines and Alex Len at the center spot. Like, yeah, it hurts to lose Gasol and Ibaka, but I I just don't see that big of a drop off. And it's not like, you know, this team enjoyed exemplary health last season. Like six of their top seven guys missed at least 10 games. Gasol missed almost 30 games. And like, I think their depth took a bit of a hit. They have a lack of forward depth in particular that leaves them pretty vulnerable to a Siakam or Ananobi injury. And also eventually like the Lowry fall off is going to happen and that's going to hurt obviously their regular season win total when it does happen. Uh, He might be worse this year than he was last year uh, when I thought, you know, he deserved to be an all NBA guy, but I don't know. I think you, you bake in some internal improvement for Siakam, OG Van Vliet. uh, And there's a bump that comes from having Nick nurse on the sidelines and his coaching ingenuity And I just think this team's floor should remain extremely high, you know, high enough to think that they can hit the over on 42 and a half, like 43, like we were saying with Dallas, that translates to about a 48 or 49 win 82 game season. I mean, I think they're still going to be a 50 plus win caliber team. So yeah, I see that. I feel pretty confident about the over in this case. Yeah. If you don't think the Raptors can play at a 48 win pace, then, uh, you're either delusional, you didn't pay attention at all to what happened last season and assume that Gasol and Ibaka like carried them in the regular season or something. Or, uh, or yeah, like I, I don't understand it because this team just pumps out wins. And, you know, if you want to look at the playoff resume sans Kawhi, fine. I guess that's a different story, but that's not what this is about. This is about a regular season win total. And this team has proven time and time and time again, they are going to rack up regular season wins. They're going to beat the teams they should beat. They're going to upset some of the teams that you think are better than them. They're going to compete with like pretty much every night. You know, someone will pick them to finish seventh and then like 30 games into the season, they'll be sitting there with like the third best overall record. And, you know, there'll be round tables about the surprise in Toronto or Tampa Bay, I guess this year, the surprising Raptors and like what's going on. Like, I can't wait for three months from now when everyone is just aghast that Kyle Lowry is doing what he's done the last seven years. Again, where did this come from? How did he do this? Kyle Lowry's like, yeah, this is who he is. This is who this team is. It's just, uh, I don't know, man. Again, if, if you're talking about playoff ceiling, fine. We can have that conversation. But for anyone that thinks a team that won 53 out of 72 games last year as you mentioned, is going to lose, like, is going to have an 11 win drop off? And 53 out of 72 games last year when they were the most beat up team in the league. Gasol essentially missed half the season. Ibaka missed plenty of time too. If you think, uh, again, just assume average health. I'm not even saying they're the picture of perfect health. I just assumed average team health. In a 72 game season, I don't know, you get 60 ish games of Baines or something. Uh, if Boucher even takes like an incremental step forward. 
60 plus games of Baines from a regular season total value perspective is worth more than 30 something games of Gasol. You know what I mean? When you start to put the pieces together, you can make the argument that they might be, if not better suited for the regular season based with normal health at the very worst breaking even. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying they're going to go 53 and 19 again, but an 11 win drop off just seems kind of insane. Um, yeah, they had games last season where they were starting Rondé Hollis Jefferson at center. And I think their strength is pretty similar to what it was last year, which is just that among their main rotation guys, they have zero minus defenders. And like having a defensive floor that high, I think is just a recipe for a ton of regular season wins. It's kind of the same reason that I feel confident in the Jazz hitting their over, right? It's just there are no defensive weak links. And, you know, I, I think they're going to have some challenges offensively for sure, but I expect them to be somewhere in the top five defensively again. And if that's the case, then I definitely think that they're going to get 43 wins or more. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how Chris Fitch helps their offense. You know, this is a guy who's considered one of the, um, you know, absolute offensive geniuses in the game. And him working with Nick Nurse will be really, really interesting to see. And yeah, and then on the defensive side, you've got Nick Nurse's creativity leading a team that's going to start Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, and Aaron Baines. Again, the, the defensive upside there raises your floor to a point where there is no way you should win less than 43 games. Yeah, and I also think that, look, uh, situationally, Ibaka can be a really effective defensive big, but he is not nearly the defender that he used to be. And I think his contributions on that side of the ball are probably overstated at this point. I don't think losing him, I think his offense will be sorely missed in the front court, especially, you know, his ability to score from the mid range, his pick and pop chemistry with Kyle Lowry. I do think they'll miss him, but defensively, I don't really think that's a significant loss for this team. I mean, I think Gasol is like a considerably bigger loss in that regard. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think they'll be fine. I do want to say, you know, you were mentioning like people are going to be losing their minds. Like how is Kyle Lowry still doing this? I think that's perfectly acceptable because it is kind of ridiculous. No, right? hold on. But you here's know, the thing. I don't. 34 year old Kyle Lowry, you know, this five foot 11 stocky point guard is still doing what he was doing last season. Then yeah, people people should be scratching their heads and wondering how it's happening because there's not really a precedent for it. But but that's what I'm saying. I don't mean they they shouldn't be flabbergasted or impressed that he's still doing at this age. I mean that there's going to be lots of people, as there is every year, who can't believe that he's doing it, period. Like, it was the same last year. Uh, a lot of people, and media included, not me, media, included were saying or were acting as if, like, they... They were just so shocked at the way maybe Lowry was carrying the team or leading the team. And it was as if they had not been paying attention for the last half decade. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't be impressed by if he continues this up at his age with the amount of miles on his body. I'm just saying we can all laugh when at some point this season, people act surprised that Lowry in general is carrying a team the way he's probably going to carry it as if he hasn't been the best player on a fringe contender you know, for the majority of his prime. Uh, that That's fair. And I think so often, you know, a lot of the conversation about how are the Raptors doing this? How are they 
you know, overachieving relative to expectations. Again, a lot of that just boils down to people not really recognizing how good Kyle Lowry is. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I would actually, given what we just talked about regarding the Celtics injury issues and depth issues, I think I might pick the Raps to finish second in the East. I think um, I think they finish out of the Celtics in the regular season. And um, yeah, like even, you know, Philly, uh, we both like the offseason they had and what Daryl Morey's done there in short order, but they, they've got some depth issues too. Like, you know, their, their bench isn't great. And again, we're talking regular season right now. <sighs> Brooklyn, obviously, like it's, t- it's so tough to peg that team. Like that, if KD is even like, I don't know, what, 80% of what he was and... Kyrie stays relatively healthy. Like they, they've also got depth around those guys. They're going to score a ton of points. Like maybe Brooklyn, but but yeah. So sometimes you just got to kind of go with more of the sure bet. And if you just want like stability and uh, reliability, then yeah, chances are the Raptors probably do come out of this with the second seed again. And that's what I'm saying. Like, and then at some point this year, everyone's going to be like, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are going to be shocked. But like, whoa, those Raptors, they just keep doing it. It's like, yeah, look at the roster. It's basically the same roster that did it last year. Why are you why are you surprised? You know? Like Yeah. That, and that's why I'm just like, I can't I, I don't understand why this line would be, you know, eleven wins lower than what they did with virtually the same roster last season. Yeah. Um all right, who you got next? All right, I had a tough time picking it because we were only picking three. I had a tough time picking between the Blazers and the Suns. I went with the Blazers, but I will talk about the Suns for a bit later. Um so the Blazers line at last check is 40.5, which is the equivalent of like a 46-win team. I think they clear that. Again, you know, everything we talk about here is assuming average health. We can't, you know, prognosticate for injuries we don't know are going to happen or not. But how many times have we talked in the past about the floor that a healthy Dame and CJ have given this team over the years, right? And that even when people think they're going to fall off, like falling off for them is still at the very worst, what? Like competing for one of the last couple playoff spots in the West. I think they had one of the better off seasons in the league. You know, I think if Dame and CJ are there and Nurkic is the player he started to show he was again uh, for periods in the bubble, I think already, you know, just with Dame, CJ and Nurk, that's a team who you could realistically assume will at the very worst be in the mix to win about 46 games in an 82 game season. Then you add Robert Covington to the mix. Uh, I, I just, I think they're better than they've been in a couple of years. Um, I think Dame is like almost as reliable as it gets in terms of like knowing what you're going to get at him. Like, especially in the regular season, even playoffs as well, to be honest. Um, and you know, we've, We've all heard about how good of like a culture setter he is there and just everything that kind of runs through him organization-wise, off the court, on the court. I just think that's a very, you know, I talked about like why Utah to me is the kind of team I don't want to like put money on. The Blazers to me with Dame running the show are the kind of team that I always at least feel confident in like a baseline floor level projection. And then you add Covington, like I said, Nurk is healthy. They're a better team, I think. And being like a 46-win team in 82-game regular season, I'll take that. Yeah, for sure. I think that this team on paper is easily better than the team that won 54 games two years ago. Like and made the West Finals. Yeah. And, and I kind of like Covington is basically just a better version of Aminu. 
you know, a more reliable shooter and a slightly more versatile defender, maybe not quite as good a one-on-one defender, but a much better team defender and a guy who brings a little bit more rim protection and and stylistic flexibility. Uh, I love the Derek Jones Jr. edition. I think that's just another guy who is switchable, who can defend multiple positions, who, you know, might be a little bit of a tenuous offensive fit, but defensively you can plug him in in any which way. And, you know, Lillard is at the point now where he's basically an offense unto himself. You know, you put him in the pick and roll with any half competent finisher or short roll playmaker and Nurkic can kind of do both of those things. And I think you're going to have a high level offense. You know, even last year when Nurkic missed the the whole year until those eight seeding games, this was, you know, a, a top 10 offense that was catastrophic defensively. But I think... And to be fair, like Nurkic, as good as he looked offensively upon returning, was not the same guy defensively. He really struggled to defend in space in particular. But if he's back to something close to the level he was playing at before he got hurt a couple seasons ago, and, you know, again, you throw Covington and Jones Jr. into the mix, which addresses their biggest defensive weakness in my mind last year, which was just that, like, they didn't have anything going on on the wing. And then, man, if... Gary Trent is the guy that he was in the bubble. That's a killer seven-man rotation. And especially given how durable Dame and CJ have been over the years and, and the floor that they give that team, I think they easily clear 40 and a half. And another kind of under-the-radar thing that should help these Western Conference teams in terms of their win totals is that the games played split this year is actually going to tilt towards them playing like a higher percentage of their games against the East. Usually it's 52 intra-conference games and 30 against the opposing conference. This year it's still 30. They're still they're still playing 30 games against the East, but only 42 against the West. And as much as you talked about the East improving this year, and certainly that top seven in the East is very good, the bottom of the East is still a tire fire. So having, uh, you know, a higher proportional split of games against the East this year, I think should help these Western Conference teams, you know, whether it's Utah or Portland, um, I think it'll be easier for them to pad their win totals. Yeah, yeah, I think this is a, a pretty safe over. Who's who's your last? Uh, my last one is the Pelicans under. They're at 36, which would peg them, you know, as exactly a 500 team. And I just don't really think that they're that like, obviously there are a bunch of reasons that they were significantly below 500 last year that may not repeat. I think they probably expect to get more than 20 games out of Zion Williamson. And that's obviously going to help a lot, but they lose drew, which is a big loss, even though I do think Bledsoe as much as his playoff struggles have been laid bare a few years in a row now does replicate a decent chunk of what holiday brought in the regular season uh, at the defensive end in particular. But as far as just like the team construction here, I I feel like the lack of shooting is a bit of an issue. Like what I feel like, what's their starting lineup going to be? Is it like Bledsoe, Lonzo, Ingram, Zion, and Steven Adams? That's abysmal from a spacing perspective. Like, yeah, and I mean That's, they have guys who can kind of like they have Redick who can unclutter things, and I think Redick has to start, man. And Lonzo come off the bench, or Bledsoe come off. Maybe the bench? Bledsoe comes off the bench. Honestly, I... and like David Griffin's out here talking about Zion playing the three, 
which no, it's it's not ideal. Like it's even the Stephen Adams um, acquisition and and extension. Like I that extension is so bizarre to me. Yeah, and listen, I get. I like Stephen Adams. He's a diminishing player. I mean, he's he's been losing a step for a couple of years, even though he's somehow only twenty eight. It feels like he's been around forever, and he's like thirty eight. But um, he has lost a step or two over the last couple of years. He's still a really solid defensive player. I think there are still things he does that it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that he can't play with Zion just because neither of them can shoot. And I think, you know, if Zion does improve his shot, I think that's a much more workable two-way front court than it seems right now. But given the shooting liabilities already on this team, it just seems very counterintuitive to throw Steven Adams in there. Like, it's not going to be good for Zion. Like, Zion and even Brandon Ingram, you know, these guys are going to need space to operate and there's not going to be a lot of space to operate when you've got Lonzo and Bledsoe and Steven Adams and, you know, insert whatever other name, like it's, and even if you just start going down the Western conference, right? Like, okay, the two LA teams, Portland, who we've already talked about, uh, Utah, that's already four teams, Dallas and Denver. Now we're at six teams, uh, Phoenix, who, you know, I'll talk about in a few minutes, but I think Phoenix is better than the Pelicans. That's seven teams. I think you can argue even without Clay, the Warriors should still be better than the Pelicans. That's eight teams. Uh, I feel like I'm also missing someone. Well, Houston, Houston, right? Depending on what happens there, if if they start the season with Harden, they're going to be better than the Pelicans. That's nine. What are we at? Eight, nine teams already. Where does New Orleans slot in? At best, ninth, maybe tenth, maybe eleventh. And is the tenth or eleventh place team in the West really a five hundred team? It could be, but I doubt it. Just in terms of the way the schedule, it like some teams got to win, some teams got to lose. If you're 11th in the West and you've had to play all those top West teams, the chances that you're going to be 500 in that position are very low. So I'm with you. I think while the Pelicans, you know, still seem like a promising team overall, big picture wise, I I think they're a losing team this year and seems like another kind of safe bet here. Yeah, I just again going back to the Adams thing, like. It, when they made that move, like they gave up a first and a second to get him, which I already wasn't crazy about, but he had this gigantic expiring contract. So you could at least justify it by saying, look, they get Adams for this one year uh, favors and Zion, as much as it doesn't seem like an on-court fit actually performed really well together last season. Zion clearly, at least at this point in his career is not prepared to play the five defensively. So you need like a legitimate backline defender next to him Adams can do a lot of the same things defensively that Favors can do even though I don't think he's as good at that end of the floor you know they'll kill teams on the offensive glass yada 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 and then his expiring contract comes off the books and you've created all of this cap space but then they go and extend him for like 17 million a season for two years beyond this one like that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me uh and ultimately you know, my betting on the under here boils down a lot to the fact that I'm just still not really a big Brandon Ingram believer. As impressed as I was by the the leap that he made last year, particularly as a shooter, I think the areas in which he's still deficient, I don't know. I just think he still has a long way to go in those areas. And even if the shooting jump is real, uh, like... As a lead playmaker, he's still not doing it for me. He still leaves a lot to be desired defensively. And honestly, like this team sucked on defense last year, and I don't really see how they addressed that issue in the offseason. So I definitely think they're going to be a below 500 team and would take the under on 36. 
you have any honorable mention you want to before i go off for 30 seconds about the suns um I, yeah honorable mention the hornets at 24 and a half i definitely like the over there i mean they won 23 out of 65 games last year they overperformed their point differential by quite a bit but uh, they still had the point differential that would have translated to i think a 21 win team over 72 games so all they have to do to best that over is be four wins better than they were last year. And I think adding Hayward, getting LaMelo is where it gets dicey, I think, uh, because we don't know what he's going to be in the NBA in his first year. And like his development being essentially the most important thing for this team could go, you know, one of two ways, right? And then force feeding him possessions because they need to bring him up to speed. If he's not ready, uh, could actually result in this team being worse. So, yeah, I'm not sure how that's going to go. But I do think, like, P.J. Washington's good and is going to get better. Like, I, I think Miles Bridges will get better. And I think Hayward stabilizes the wing uh, in a way that's just going to give them, a, like, a higher floor than 24 wins. So I, I like the over on 24 and a half for Charlotte. Yeah, I think acquiring Hayward put the Hornets in a very similar position to what they usually are. And that's that they made a move that made them just good enough to still be trash, but just good enough to not be bad enough to end up with uh, one of the top picks in what could actually be a pretty special draft, especially in comparison to this year. So kudos to uh, Michael Jordan and Mitch Kupchak's Hornets for doing what they do. Gotta love the meaty middle. The Hornets love it. Um, the Suns for me were, it was tough for me not to include them in my three, but I think they're going over 38. So they got to go 39 and 33 or better. I know maybe that sounds kind of dicey for a team that hasn't made the playoffs in a decade. And, you know, you need all this, this new look team to kind of figure it out in a truncated season. But I'm, I think it's worth betting on, man. The, the win total that you'd be betting on is you need them to play at a 527 win percentage. The last time a Chris Paul team played at anything worse than a 560 win percentage was 11 years ago. If Chris Paul's on the court, there's a good chance you're playing winning basketball. You put Chris Paul with Devin Booker and improving Mikel Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, Jay Crowder. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago or last week, I don't remember when it was, about how their bench might be sneaky competent. Again, everything we say is you know assuming average health. Uh, that team's winning at least 53% of its games and that gets you to the over. So they weren't in my first three, but I think they're above more than even just an honorable mention. I I think that's a good bet. Yeah, I think the, the one thing that would make me a little bit reticent is like if Chris Paul doesn't have a healthy season, their backcourt depth is really shaky. And, you know, if he misses a bunch of time, then... I think it would be actually pretty tough for them to hit the over. I don't expect him to be as healthy as he was last season when he missed, I think, two games. But, you know, if he's somewhere close to that, you know, let's say he plays like 60 plus, then, yeah, I definitely like them to go over 38. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. 
Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, let's talk about the bottom of the East playoff picture. Do we have to? (laughs) I mean, we don't have to. No. I I think it's interesting. But you also wrote about it. I did write about it uh, because, as I've mentioned, I just think, you know, between Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, Philly, Brooklyn, Miami, Indiana, I really don't expect any of those teams to fall out of the playoffs, again, barring like a catastrophic injury. So that just kind of leaves the rest of the conference fighting over the scraps, which essentially boil down to these three play-in spots. That's eight teams that'll be fighting for those spots or, you know, in a couple of cases, maybe not fighting that hard <laughs> for those spots. I, I just wanted to talk about kind of how you see that shaking out. And, you know, as I wrote about, I, I feel like given their offseason moves, Atlanta is probably in pole position to get that last playoff spot. But what do you think? How do you, how do you see this shaking out? Well, um, process of elimination. I can tell you who won't be in this slap fight and it's uh I'd say the Cavs, the Pistons, and the Knicks yep. are three teams that I just died. Even in this like play-in situation in a bad bottom half of the conference, I think those teams are so bad they're not getting in. The Hornets, as I mentioned, like I, I don't know, maybe you have a little more faith in them. I, I do think they've raised their floor. I don't think they're competing. I don't know. The Magic, to me, are a team that's going to be worse. Um, I know Coach Clifford always has them kind of like fighting and scrapping and clawing and you know, playing somewhat like a, a 500 team, but no Isaac. Augustine, you know, when you're a team like the Orlando Magic, yes, losing DJ Augustine's kind of a big hit there. I don't think they're going to be as good. I almost want to rule them out, to be honest. And, and that leaves me... Play-in scenario. You think the Magic will be in the play-in scenario? I do, yeah. I, I don't. I think the play-in scenario ends up being uh, the Hawks, the Bulls, and if Bradley Beal lasts the entire season in Washington, the Wizards. I think, as you do, that the Hawks are in pole position. I actually think, depending on how things break out, I think the Hawks might be a little closer to the Pacers, sorry to break it to you, than than they are to the rest of the bottom half of the East. I just think, look, they're not not made for the playoffs. They're not ready to compete for anything big yet. There are a lot of issues with the fit of the roster. We've talked about that, but... The talent level, especially in comparison to the teams we're talking about, is undeniable. And at that level, I feel like the talent should win out. And also, like, yeah, their defense is going to be trash. Their offense could be abs- or should be absolutely elite. And again, when you're when we're talking about these teams, we're not talking about contenders here. We're talking about like some pretty bad to mediocre teams at best. If you're elite on one side of the ball and you have that much of a talent advantage over the other teams. I just think, I think it'd be a serious disappointment and underachievement if you don't beat those teams out. So I think to me, Atlanta is like the clear cut eight here, barring catastrophe. And then, yeah, I think, you know, I've been high on, not on the bulls as a team, but at least on like the upside of some of their young talent for a year or two now. And again, I think in a situation where really they just got to finish top 10, 
And, you know, don't discount the bump they might get from having a real life NBA quality head coach, which they have again in, in Billy Donovan. They haven't had that in a while. Jim Boylan was there getting them to punch the clock literally the last couple of years. So I think, I think between the Bulls t- talent upside plus a real, you know, coach that will get them at least playing functional NBA basketball, I think they should finish top 10. And then, uh, like I said, with Washington, like I, the Wizards roster isn't great, but and the John Wall situation might get really complicated. But I think Bradley Beal is good enough. And I think they have enough decent talent around them that, again, in this race with these teams to compete with, I think the Wizards with Beal all season should get one of the top 10 spots. And uh, yeah, that leaves the Magic out. That leaves the Hornets out. And then the Knicks, the Pistons, and uh, the Cavs. What about you? I think the the Wizards will definitely be in that mix. I, I guess if I had to pick, I would take Atlanta, Orlando, and Washington. So you're I'm, taking Orlando over me picking Chicago. That's really yeah, the only difference. Because I just think there, there's really just like not a lot of top-end talent on this team, right? I do think the coaching bump they're going to get will help. But there's still just such a glaring lack of playmaking that... I, th- I think it's going to be tough for the- like, I think they were 29th in offense last year. And I do think Donovan will get more out of them at that end than Boylan did, but without even an average facilitator, I, I think it's going to be a challenge, man. Like, I-, I don't know how far you can go with Zach Levine as your lead playmaker. And like, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not, maybe Kobe white takes on that role this season, or maybe it's Sadoransky, but like a team with Zach Levine as its best player, I just don't know how far that team can actually go. And they were competent last year because they very surprisingly managed to eke out a top 10 defense. But I think the guy who was most responsible for that is now gone in Chris Dunn. And I think, you know, Wendell Carter could be the kind of guy who is like a a switchable rim protecting anchor on the back line. Like he's shown maybe some flashes of being that guy, but he has to show that he can actually put together a complete season where he actually fills that role on a consistent basis. And Lowry Markinen, I mean, he was super disappointing last year. Uh, what is he at this point? And I think like, that's a guy that benefits from having a real coach again. I think so. But like, you know, does the fit with him and Carter in the front court actually work? Like it mm, seems probably not. It should because of how Markinen can stretch the floor. But then, you know, one of those guys, like I, I think Carter is more a five than a four defensively. I do think Carter could play the four defensively. But Markinen is one of these guys who, to me, is sort of caught between positions defensively and doesn't really make a whole lot of sense with the four or the five. And then Levine, obviously, is a train wreck at that end of the floor. And as much as, you know, maybe a healthy season from Otto Porter, I think, would help a great deal. Uh, and Thad Young is still there. Like there are still good defensive players in place. And also like Pat Williams, I guess, if he's ready to contribute at that end right away, then maybe that makes a difference. But I just think, I, I don't expect to see a huge leap from them offensively. And I kind of expect them to take a step back defensively. So I just don't see it with this team. I didn't really see it last year when everyone wanted to anoint them a playoff team. And I'm still not seeing it. And I think that the lack of playmaking is something that I really expect to hurt them. And I think with Orlando, it's just, yeah, they're going to miss Isaac a hundred percent. And, and 
the Augustine point is a good one because this was already a team that was pretty light on shot creation. And it's a little bit different than Chicago because they actually do have like good passers. Like Fultz is a good passer. Fultz can be, you know, like if the jump shot ever comes around, right? Like he could be a lead playmaker because he has that kind of vision and the, and the passing acumen to actually do that. But him just being a complete non-threat as a scorer in the pick and roll, not a complete non-threat because he he's actually good at snaking his way to the basket and is a really good finisher around the rim. Actually shot pretty well from mid-range last year. But if defenders are just constantly ducking under screens against him and completely ignoring him off the ball, that makes it difficult for the Magic, I think, to organize their half-court offense. And look, DJ Augustine is... No one's going to confuse him for a star, but he was probably their best pick-and-roll operator last year. And they didn't really replace him unless Cole Anthony is like ready to step into that role right away, which, given the college season that he had, doesn't seem like it's going to be the case. So... For them, like their offense has been pretty poor the last two years, but they survived because they've had a top 10 defense. And with Isaac out of the picture, I think that's going to be really tough. I still just think like with Vucevic there, like he's he's way better than anybody on Chicago to me. And, you know, Gordon actually played some of his best basketball when he was allowed to play the four full time after Isaac got hurt last year. And Fultz... With Augustine out of the picture, he's going to have basically every opportunity to prove that he can build on his development last year. So I think there's a chance for them to creep towards being like a 500 team and getting into that mix. Uh, I would I would put them ahead of Chicago for now, but not with a whole lot of confidence. And the Wizards, like, like obviously, we there's so much we don't know about John Wall and what he's going to look like. But, you know, even if, if Wall's explosiveness doesn't come all the way back and his jump shot has always been somewhat sketchy. I don't think he's going to be like a particularly efficient scorer, but the dude can still like create shots for other people. And, you know, Bertans is another guy whose contract I really didn't like, but I think if we're just talking about this coming season, he's going to help a whole heck of a lot. And um, as I pointed out in that piece, with him and Beal both on the floor last season, the Wizards had a 118.7 offensive rating, which is like two points better than the Mavs offensive rating, which was the best of all time. So I think this team is going to be able to score. Uh, the defense is where things are going to get concerning. And uh, again, yeah, I don't really think like they were 29th in the league in defense last year. I don't think they really got a whole lot better at that end. I, I don't think, Robin Lopez is like a stabilizing presence in the middle that's really going to up the team's defensive floor. But I think their offense could be good enough uh, at the least to get them into the play-in mix. Yeah. Uh, and then, again, I think after that, you get to a lot of teams that are basically not even worth talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the Pistons, as I've said before, I I just don't understand how they're going to create enough space to run a functional half-court offense. I think this might be the single worst shooting team in the league. So yeah, I I think that's going to be a real challenge for them. And uh, their hopes of getting into that play-in mix is basically entirely dependent on Blake Griffin getting back to the level he was at two years ago. And even that might not be enough, just given how, how little spacing they're going to have. And, uh, 
you know, the Knicks are obviously not like they're not really playing for this season. Even I think like defensively, the Knicks actually have a chance to be pretty decent on account of, you know, Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel and Frank Nilakina. Like they were, they were not terrible defensively last year. Uh, but offensively, again, it's like they didn't really do anything to address their issues. They still don't have a point guard. They still haven't put spacing around RJ Barrett. You know, I feel I feel for RJ Barrett because like he had a really rough rookie season and the situation just hasn't really improved, right? Like there's still no spacing around him. He's still going to be relied upon to be a primary playmaker uh, because there's no point guard there. And I just think it's going to be like, I'd expect him to be better in year two, but how much better can he be given the situation that he's in? Yeah, the organization is not doing him any favors. And I don't know, man, like you... <laughs> Like some of the stuff Thibodeau's been talking about, and, and the reports that like Thibodeau really wanted them to uh, approach the offseason like a win now team. It's just like, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like this can go very sideways in typical Knicks fashion. Do you, you don't see the Hornets as having any chance to get into that mix? I guess. Like, again, we're just talking about them needing <laughs> to be 10th place in the Eastern Conference. Like, yeah, sure. They could. They could get in them. Yeah. Like, they could. Absolutely. But, I don't know what I would I count on it. Definitely not. I mean, I think the thing with the Hornets that I'm interested to see is like, how far are they going to tilt towards short term ambition compared to like their long term ambitions? Because if they do that, I definitely think that they can be good enough to snag a top 10 seed. Uh, I think their, their situation at center is like pretty concerning it's like Cody Zeller and basically nothing else. So I, I do think that's a concern. I mean, they'll, they'll probably play small a bunch with like PJ Washington at the five and those lineups could be relatively effective. I just think Hayward raises their floor a lot. And I think it's definitely possible that they're in that mix. Like they could finish ahead of Orlando. They could finish ahead of Chicago. They could finish ahead of Washington. I wouldn't rule them out. And like the Hayward signing, and the dollar amount certainly gives the indication that they're trying to win more now. But, you know, at the same time, uh, I, I do think like LaMelo is going to have to be the focus. And so I, I think there could be some, some competing ambitions there that make this a bit of a mishmash kind of season. It's very um, indicative of just Jordan's tenure as a team owner in general, where like the impatience and the inconsistency inconsistency in like roster decisions from year to year don't really make any sense and don't really um ever seem like he and his front office are committed to a long-term plan all right let's just close this off with a quick discussion about atlanta because you said you think that they're closer to yeah man like look at the talent on that team and then look at these other teams we're talking about it's to me it's like a drastic difference yeah, well, so the the shot creation is one thing that I pointed to. I, I believe certainly among the teams in this mix, like they they have the most potent offense, or they should. And I, I think the the thing that I am I don't know if concern is the right word because I I just think with a team like this where you know the the realistic expectations are like a first round exit. You know, if they like lose up in the play-in tournament and don't make it to the playoffs proper, I don't think that's like a terrible outcome by any stretch. Like the stakes don't feel really high for this team. So I wouldn't even use a word like concern, but I guess the thing that's interesting to me about this team 
And the reason I think it might not work as well as some people maybe expect it to is just, I, I don't know that their best players can be on the floor at the same time. And obviously we've talked about that in terms of their front court and like how they're going to fit like Collins, Gallinari, Capella, Okongwu together. And does sound like Gallinari is going to start by coming off of the bench, which I think is the right approach. I'm interested in, in the backcourt fit because I actually think that what would make more sense if they were willing to do this, which I don't think that they will be after giving Bogdanovich that $72 million deal, although they just shelled out a ton of money for Gallo and he's going to come off the bench. So maybe not, but like, I think it would make way more sense to start done next to Trey young and bring Bogdan off of the bench because Dunn is actually the kind of guy who can cover for some of Trey's limitations defensively, whereas Bogdan can't really. And I think, you know, one of the biggest issues for this team last year was when Trey wasn't on the floor, their offense was a disaster. And I think it makes way more sense to have Bogdanovich kind of captaining their second unit offense as opposed to having that role go to like Rondo or Dunn who I don't think are going to be able to do a whole lot for their offense, you know, in their transitional lineups. But I think having that kind of playmaker in Bogdanovich coming off of the bench, so their offense doesn't fall to pieces when Trey's not on the floor, maybe makes a little bit more sense. I mean, I think their best five would be having Trey, Dunn, Bogdan, Gallo, and uh, I don't know, I guess Capella, and having just slide Bogdan to the three. Yeah, so there are trade and just trade Collins, man, and and balance this roster. Like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if they could trade Collins for like an ace wing defender, they I think they'd really be in business. Yeah, the thing I think too is like even like I get I get what your concern is, but the way I see it, and and this is what I was talking about with like their their overall talent level to me is so drastically higher than the rest of the teams we're talking about that it's like it almost doesn't matter that they can't play their best five together because whatever combination, five-man combination you come up with from their rotation guys is going to be so much more talented than like Charlotte or even Washington or Chicago or Orlando, you know? And and so that's why I just think it would be like a big underachievement if this team finishes anything lower than eighth. I mean, in the plan scenario, I suppose anything could really happen. Right, right. Like if they're eighth, you know, all, all it would really take, they just, they just lose two games yeah, and, and that's it. Uh, and that's why it's kind of hard to, you know, let's say Indiana finishes seventh. They're still at risk of like losing two straight games and being out of the playoffs entirely. So it kind of complicates the, the playoff picture as we try and construct it in this hypothetical. But I do think if we were just picking like who we think the best teams are going to be, then yeah. Uh, I, I see. I see the Hawks taking that eight seed. They're they're going to be one of the more interesting teams to watch, though. I think, and and how they balance offense versus defense is probably going to be the most interesting part of that. And then, like similar to Charlotte, right? It's about balancing their short and long term ambitions. And I think that you know all these veterans that they brought in are sort of coming at the expense of the development of their younger guys. Uh, and you know, it's going to eat into the playing time of Kevin Herter and Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter. And I think you can debate whether or not that's the right long-term strategy for this team. But it's certainly hard to argue that for this coming season, it's going to make them 
a lot better than they were last year and probably a lot better than the teams chasing them in the East. Anything, anything you want to add to that about the bottom of the Eastern Conference? No, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out of this, uh, of these, I don't want to call them trash again, but uh, these underwhelming professional basketball outfits. We, we've fulfilled our contractual obligation yeah, to exactly. talk about the teams at the bottom of the East. Yeah. I kind of wanted to do this exercise for that reason, so we would yeah. have a, a chance to just talk about those teams, and then we can leave them behind and probably not talk about them again until maybe next offseason. Yeah. Fan, uh, fan shout-outs? Uh, okay, I have a fan shout-out for Sean Woodley, who some of our listeners may know. He hosts the Locked On Raptors podcast, does a great job with that, and is a loyal listener and recently told me that he finds our pod particularly soothing to listen to when he is, quote, stoned out of his gourd. So to Sean, thanks for listening and happy to soothe your mind while you're blasted. Very, uh, we are very honored to be your digital munchies, Sean. Um, I'll, uh, so shout out Woodley. Yeah, you're right. Um, I'll shout out I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right, but Martin Ehrman or Orman. I think it's Ehrman. Martin Ehrman in Denmark, all the way in Denmark, uh, reached out on Instagram uh, to let us know that, uh, yeah, he's a loyal listener. And and um, so shout out to Martin and shout out to Woodley. Feel free to keep reaching out to us with any feedback that you might have, positive or negative, and we will keep the shout outs coming. But for now, we're going to sign off for Joseph Cacharo. I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock.